So this afternoon we're studying Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30. And before we read that, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we sit here and study your word, I ask for your help, Lord, that I would speak according to the wisdom of God and not according to the wisdom of man. And Father, I ask that you would help all of us as we hear these things, that we would learn, that we would be built up in faith and in Christ-likeness, and that we would be obedient. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 14. And um, before I read that, I just point out the context. Jesus has just had victory over Satan and over the temptations of the devil. So starting at Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marvelled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Amen. May God bless his word to us. I better dig out my notes or at least my, what I have of notes. So Jesus has, as I mentioned, had victory over the devil in the wilderness. In, in the time of temptation, Jesus was faithful. He was tempted, but without sin. He did not for a moment give in. He clung to the promises of God. He clung to the word of God that he had heard, that he had believed, that he had received. And so... For the first time, for the first time ever, a man is going to do the things that it was intended by God that a man should do. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, we read in Genesis chapter 1 
verses 26 to 31. We read, and there God says it twice, take dominion over the earth. Take dominion. It specifically says, take dominion over every creature upon the earth. In Genesis chapter 3, where Eve is deceived and Adam knowingly rebels and sins against God, it says that the one who worked the deception was the craftiest of all the creatures of the field. In other words, Adam had twice been told that he was to take dominion. And yet the serpent comes into the garden and Adam does not exercise himself. He does not put himself out there. He does not go to battle. He fails to take dominion. Jesus has defeated that enemy. From here on in, all of his works are in light of the fact that he has defeated that enemy, that that, that serpent who was able to turn Adam aside is completely unable to turn Jesus aside. Now, Jesus is not a normal man, and we know that. We're Christians. We, we, you know, we, I've, we've heard the doctrine again and again. He is truly man. He is truly God. He is not a normal man. But even so, that which is human, his humanity, is truly human. He is truly the seed of a woman. He is truly a man born of a woman. Others before him worked great works. You can think immediately of Moses. You can think of, well, Jesus himself mentions Elijah and Elisha. There was also Joshua. These men had probably the uh, most powerful, miraculous ministries in the Old Testament. But they were all men and they were all capable of sinning and they all did in some way sin. Jesus has not sinned. He does not sin. He's called by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, the second Adam, also in the book of Corinthians. First Corinthians, the second Adam. Well, Jesus returns. I shouldn't say returns. Jesus comes to Judah and he starts to take dominion. Verse 14 of our passage, Luke chapter 4, verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So this, this receiving of the Holy Spirit that had, that happened at his baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon him, taking upon himself the form of a dove, and there he remained. In the testing, all that happened, the Holy Spirit is still abiding upon, in, with Jesus. Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. What was he doing? Why would a report about him go around about all the surrounding country? Well, first of all, we're going to see that he was preaching the scriptures and he was preaching the scriptures with authority and he was interpreting the scriptures with authority and he was basically saying there is one and there is one only way to understand these passages. That's not the way the rabbis were teaching at that time. 
If you asked a rabbi at that time about a passage of scripture, the rabbi would repeat to you the teachings back through history of various prominent rabbis. Rabbi Simeon said, Rabbi Joel said, Rabbi Gamaliel says, Jesus comes to them preaching the scriptures, preaching them clearly, preaching with authority and interpreting them and interpreting himself as being the centre of God's word, himself as being the fulfilment of God's promises. Basically here he's saying that this is all about me. And, you know, every time you notice that, you've got to ask the question, what kind of man, what kind of person can open the scriptures open to some of the most famous, beloved passages in the scriptures and say, this is all about me. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 61. He's taking the promises of Isaiah and he's applying them directly to himself and he's saying, here it is. It's happening right here right in front of your very eyes. If you're wondering about all the things that you've heard, you've heard that sickness is healed, you've heard that I teach the scriptures with clarity, you've heard that I have victory over the forces of evil, you've heard all of these things. Why is it happening? Because this is all about me. You know, I know I've said this to you many times, but if I, if I start talking about myself in this way, you should just laugh your heads off at me. You know, it's, I, you know, if I start trying to tell you that the scripture is all about me, that I'm the reincarnation of Jesus or some such thing, that I'm the savior sent by God to save the world, you should just laugh your head off at me. It, it, it's as silly as, it, it's as silly as any of us trying to say such a thing. But Jesus says these things. He interprets Isaiah. And when he takes Isaiah 61, well, that's simply representative of a whole prophetic book. The whole book of Isaiah, 66 chapters of it, is just filled with the promises of God of eternal salvation coming to the people of God, of God swallowing up death, of God doing a great and mighty work, of God gathering his people from all corners of the earth, of God bringing judgment upon the earth, even as God saves his own people to eternal life. It's just filled with these promises. For Jesus to pick Isaiah chapter 61 and say, Isaiah chapter 61 is about me, he's saying, and all the other 65 chapters of the book of Isaiah, it's all me. I'm the one. I'm the one that Isaiah promised. I'm the salvation that Isaiah spoke of. He began to say to them, looking at verse 21 of chapter 4, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 22, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Wonderful. They all sat there and said, oh, this is wonderful. How is he doing these things? Oh, he's the promised one. Oh, this is wonderful. But something happens here. 
It, it all seems good, 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 doesn't it? All spoke well of him, marvelling at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not, is this not, is not, sorry, is not this Joseph's son? We know this guy. He's a local. We, we've seen him play in the streets when he was a kid. Always thought he was a nice boy. I always said he's a nice boy. Good things were going to happen. We know him. Is not this Joseph's son? And at that moment, Jesus turns it against them. At that very moment. To confess that he's the son of Joseph is not enough. Now, technically, in, in legal terms now, we know that he's the son of God, that he was conceived in the Virgin Mary by the power of God's Holy Spirit, but he was considered to be Joseph's son. Joseph took him as his son. Joseph raised him as his son. But it's not enough. It's not enough. It's, it's not, it's not, it's not a sufficient confession of faith to say that you know his family and you know where he came from. It's not enough to put attention on the household in which he was raised. And at this moment, verse 23, Jesus basically turns the whole thing around. From here on in, everything he says about them is, um, and I know that you're not going to believe. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What's he saying? Where, 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 would, where would you sort of have someone say to Jesus, physician, heal yourself? Well, it really only makes sense if you think forward to the cross. And you think forward to Jesus dying on the cross. People were laughing. People were spitting. People were saying, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross and then we'll believe in you. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Show us a sign. Do a great work. Impress us. We're here. We're ready to be impressed. And he's already implying what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well, I'm not going to do it. You're demanding a sign. I'm not going to give you one. It's not happening. You're not going to see anything wonderful. I have proclaimed to you the scripture. I have proclaimed to you the truth. And I'm not going to give you a sign. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon or Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Prophet Elijah. He started a school of the prophets. He had a small following. Many, many would, many teach that this is um, basically the beginning of synagogue based worship in ancient Israel, from the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah does not support a Jewish widow through the famine. He goes to a foreign country, to a foreign household, and supports a foreigner in the famine, according to the will of God. 
Verse 27, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Well, this is even more offensive. Naaman was a military man. Naaman was one who would have conducted many military raids against the Jews. And he's the leper who gets healed. You know, one thing about leprosy in that day, and there were probably a number of diseases that were called leprosy, including what we all think of when we think of leprosy, when we think of uh, Hansen's disease, that, that sort of disease that wastes the flesh, people's, people's skin goes numb and ultimately um, something like gangrene sets into the extremities of the limbs and works through the body till it kills them. But um, Naaman, the Syrian, is the one who was healed. He's the one who was cleansed and no one gets healed of leprosy. What's the warning? The warning in context to the people of Nazareth. You think you've got the inside running. You think you've got the inside running. You think he came from our town. We know his relatives. Some of them there may be thinking, I even spoke to him as a boy. I remember once I gave him a little gift or I gave him a little bit of food or whatever. I even spoke to him as a boy. They think they've got the inside running. Location, familiarity, we've got the inside running. And Jesus said, I wasn't sent to you. Just as Elijah was sent to a widow in a foreign land, just as Elisha only cleaned a leper who was a Syrian military man. I wasn't sent to you. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They understand what he's saying. You think you've got the inside running? You don't. You think you've got a privileged position? You don't. You think that automatically some kind of benefit is conferred from you because the Saviour grew up in Nazareth? It's not happening. My friends, there's only one way to salvation. And the scripture assures us that salvation is not the result of works that anyone may boast. There's only one way to salvation. You have to submit to the teaching of Jesus. Jesus has opened the scriptures to these people. Jesus has explained to them that the promises of the prophets, the promises of the prophet Isaiah, they're being fulfilled in and through me. You want the benefits that God has promised, you get them in and through me. And there is no other way. There's no other way to get to that eternal life that Isaiah spoke of. There's no other way to get to that land of eternal blessing that Isaiah spoke of other than through me. And you've got to let go of everything. You've got to let go of your pride. You've got to let go of hoping that somehow or other I'm the one that sets Nazareth upon the map. Remember, we're told in the Gospel of John, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Can any good thing? It's not going to happen. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Something happens when the truth is preached. Something always happens when the truth is preached. And we may not necessarily see the, we may not necessarily see this. We may not necessarily understand this. It's not always this dramatic that people start shouting and want to kill the preacher. 
Mind you, when the Apostle Paul preached, there were plenty of riots and people started shouting and wanted to kill the preacher. And even at the same time, hundreds, possibly even thousands were being saved and churches were being planted all over the ancient world. But something happens whenever the truth is preached, whenever Jesus is proclaimed. What happens is either people submit to and accept the truth, people give their lives to God through Jesus our Lord, or they're hardened in their sin. That's the way it works. We, you know, we. Have you heard people use the phrase, he's almost a Christian? He's a good man. He's almost a Christian. No, he's not almost a Christian. Okay? What he is, is he's a sinner who is resisting the conviction of God's Holy Spirit. I'm not saying he's not doing good things. I'm not saying he might not be a decent husband. I'm thinking of one man in particular who was who was sort of loosely associated with a church that Lisa and I used to attend many years ago. His wife was a Christian. Her husband was a decent man and her husband was a businessman and he was known for fair business dealings and he had made quite a bit of wealth. Oh, he's almost a Christian. As though all he had to do was wake up tomorrow morning and say, you know what, I think today I'm going to believe in Jesus. When the gospel is preached, people are either drawn to Jesus or pushed away from Jesus. Looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14. Paul writes, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? What Paul is saying is that to those who are being saved, the gospel that he's preaching is the aroma of life. It's strengthening, it's building up, it's effectually calling. You know, we all live on the gospel. All of us who are Christians, we live on the gospel. You can't hear enough of this truth. You can't hear enough about Jesus. You need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. Everything about a church service is supposed to be reminding us of the truth that has brought us to salvation. And when we have communion, the communion itself represents the gospel. The body and the blood of our Lord given for our sins until he comes again. And when we're baptized, we're baptized into Christ as Christ himself was baptized into. You could put it this way. He was baptized into our place. That baptism, he was submitting then to the law of God, all of its demands, the requirements of God. He was submitting to die in our place. And so the scripture uses the phrase that we're baptized into his death, we're baptized into his life, we're baptized into Christ. Everything about the Christian life or everything about Christian fellowship should be a reminder of the truth of the gospel, which is for us the aroma of life. Brings us life, gives us life, makes us more alive. In the Gospel of John, Jesus spoke of giving abundant life. You shall have life to the full. That life to the full is a life where 
we're actually living the life that we were created and designed to live. Mankind, humanity was created to be a worshipping being. Our fellowship with God comes to us through worshipping and glorifying God. We were created to be reliant upon God. We were not created to be autonomous. We were not created to live apart from God. We, we, were, not, we were not given our abilities in order to use them to turn away from God. We were given our abilities to lay them at God's feet, to be his servants. We were created to serve. Now, if the nature of humanity is that you're created to serve, well, what are you going to do? You're going to serve. And then it becomes a question of who and or what will you serve? Who and or what will you serve? Who and or what do we serve? Well, through faith in Christ, by the power of God's Holy Spirit, those who are in Christ, we serve God. Those who are outside of Christ, they're still serving creatures. I do whatever I want, they say. I've never been a slave, they say, as the Pharisees said to Jesus. We've never been slaves and we're not the children of adultery. They're still slaves. The one who sins is a slave to his sin. People just get confirmed in their sins. And so the preaching of the gospel is a fragrance from death to death, even at the same time as it's a fragrance from life to life. And the Apostle Paul calls this the triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him anywhere. You know, I, it's always nice in the right season to walk past a house that has a jasmine vine. It fills the whole street. Nice. It's lovely. It's not so nice to walk anywhere near the garbage tip on a hot day. <laughs> you know, that's, a, that's another fragrance that spreads out across a broad distance. And Paul is saying to those who are called, to those who are in Christ, to those to whom God is giving life, this is a life-giving fragrance. This is a life-giving thing. To those who are not called, to those who are rebellious, to those who are in their sins, to those who refuse to repent, this is a death-giving thing. People are being confirmed in their sins. And so preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit, it is, even at the same time, it's winsome. It's, it's blessed to we who are in Christ. It doesn't matter where you are, whether you're in a big congregation, a small congregation, whether you're listening to a visiting speaker or your week-by-week pastor. You know when you're being fed. You know when that person's bringing you something that has come from study of the scripture, prayer, and, and, and just a life of faith. And you think, this is so wonderful. Why, why won't everybody listen to this? How, how can they hear this? You, you know that there are people in the room who haven't given their hearts to the Lord, children raised in Christian families under the nurture and admonition of the Lord, for example, their friends, whoever might turn up at any particular time. How can they hear this and not be submitting to this? Well, that which to us is so sweet, so nourishing and so empowering to them it's offensive. To them, it's telling them that they don't measure up and they never will as much as they want to measure up. It's a daydream. It's a wasted effort. 
You are not righteous. Your own understanding is not sufficient. You have not the wisdom of God. The foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man. You are indeed insufficient to work for, to earn, to deserve your own salvation. You see, the passage that we read, what did it take? 30 seconds to read? We need to understand all of this has happened in something longer than 30 seconds. Jesus was preaching. Luke brings us the major points of that which he spoke. He tells them that he himself is the fulfilment of these scriptures. And then he warns them that his life is going to be something they will not understand. I'm going to be crucified. You will say, physician, heal yourself. He warns them that the life that he's going to live as this saviour of the people of God is going to be a life that they do not understand. He's not here to conquer the world with an army. He's not here to drive the Romans out of the promised land. He's here to obey God no matter what the cost, and that's going to take him to the cross. And there you'll be shouting at me, physician, heal yourself. He warns them that, Those people who at this moment think that they are the people of God are going to reject this message. Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And that sort of expands out into all the people of Israel at that time. The vast majority of them did not believe. Even though we know that when the Apostle Peter starts to preach the gospel, around 40 days after After the resurrection of our Lord, we know that thousands were converted. You're talking about a nation of hundreds of thousands. And so he warns them. He preaches to them. He warns them that God has sent me to be the saviour of all who believe. Not just within Judah, but outside of Judah. The two prophetic examples that he picks up from Elijah and Elisha were God ministering to people who were not Jews who were not by blood the offspring of Abraham. He's saying, you know, God has been calling people from outside of this nation from time immemorial. And in my ministry, God is going to be gathering people from all over the world, not just Jews. And so, though Jesus himself has this victory over Satan that he won in the wilderness, And though he is now ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit, yet for those who will not submit to the truth of his word, I would suggest to you that the devil within them was stirred up. And when I say the devil within them, I'm not saying necessarily that they are possessed by the prince of darkness himself. But I'm saying that those who have no faith are servants of the evil one, one way or another, and the preaching of Jesus himself stirred up that evil that was within them. And they rose up and drove him out of the town. Now, once again, think about it. Did Jesus stop them from driving him out of the town? And could he have? And the answer all along is he lays down his own life. And the things that happen to him, he permits them to happen. If he could have called upon so many legions of angels to make sure he didn't go to the cross, he could have at this time called upon so many legions of angels to make sure that they could not take him to the brow of the hill. 
They drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff. It's the start of a stoning, basically. Throw the guy off the high point, he falls to the bottom, bones are broken, he's bashed up, and then you just pick up big rocks. Stone him to death. You finish him off. He becomes nothing but a body under a pile of stones. That's the plan. And then he does do a sign. He does do something miraculous. I love the way it's put in such minimalistic terms. But passing through their midst, he went away. As easily as that. It was not his time to die. He was not going to die at the hands of the people of Nazareth. He was not going to be stoned to death. He had an appointment. He knew what the appointment was. He knew his scriptures. He knew Isaiah chapter 53. He knew Psalm 22. He knew that he would be going to the cross. It always strikes me as just an amazing thought. There was some point in the life of Jesus, a young Jesus, when he saw a Roman crucifixion and he connected all the scriptural dots and he knew that's it. That's the fulfilment of the word of God. That's the fulfilment of Psalm 22. That's the fulfilment of Isaiah 53. Now, he didn't call them Psalm 22, nor did he call them Isaiah 53. But I'm speaking for our benefit. That's what we call them. That's the fulfilment of so many different things in the scripture. It's all going to fall on me. So he passes through their midst. They're not going to put him to death. They're they're not going to break his body in this way. Passing through their midst, he went away. I chose the last hymn, Pass me not, O gentle Saviour. Do not pass me by. Jesus left them in the state that they were in. He had preached the truth. He had, if you want to think of it this way, scattered the seed. Who knows, but perhaps there were people who repented in Nazareth. Who knows, but perhaps there were people in this crowd who actually came to faith at some point in time. You know, we're, 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 we're scattering the seed. But he passed through their midst and he went away from them. There's a question I like to ask people when I'm told that basically God is utterly reliant upon us to take the gospel into the nations and God is utterly reliant upon our efforts to grow the church. Now, what I'm talking about, if you want to know, theologically it's called Arminianism, the belief that basically a person chooses of their own merits, of their own intelligence, of their own wisdom, according to their own desires, a person chooses Jesus, apart from the work of the Spirit of God. What's the difference between Reformed theology and non-Reformed theology? Reformed theology says that regeneration precedes faith. Non-Reformed theology says that faith precedes regeneration. In other words, you exercise faith, and in return for exercising faith, God grants you life. But here's the question I want to ask people who think, that all you have to do is get a person to make a choice of their own accord. All you have to do is be convincing enough to get a person to make a choice of their own accord. How can you possibly sleep at night? 
How can you possibly sleep at night? If that's what you really think, you have taken upon yourself the burden of being God to everyone you meet. You've taken upon yourself the burden of having the duty to convince somebody to simply change their mind. And that's not the burden that Scripture places upon us. And that's not what Jesus does here in this passage. He speaks the truth and then he leaves the truth with them. If any of them are going to be saved, it will be a work of God's Holy Spirit taking that word and it becomes the seed within the heart that we spoke about in this morning service. He speaks the truth and leaves it with them. If, if I honestly thought that your salvation, your ongoing salvation or the salvation of any person out there in the world was utterly reliant upon me, how good I was at preaching, how good I was at speaking the gospel, how much knowledge I could impart towards a person, how well I could answer their questions. Well, there's this thing, you know, it's called pastoral burnout. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Pastoral burnout. Guys go into the ministry and within 10 years, they've had something close to a nervous breakdown. They can't stand it any longer. They're utterly exhausted. You know, I, I know one guy who got out of the ministry. I believe he's a Christian. I believe he's a good guy. I also believe he has um, not great theology. And he got out of the ministry. He had migraine headaches from the moment he woke up to the moment he went to sleep every day and nothing seemed to be treating it. And when he got out of the ministry, the headaches went away. Now, I'm, what am I saying? I, look, I'm not saying that he was under some kind of demonic affliction. I don't have the prophetic insight to know anything like that. But what I am saying is he was under, he had put himself under an incredible amount of stress with his Arminian theology and the feeling that he had taken upon himself that everything, everything required him to make this 110% effort 24-7 wherever he was and at any time, he wore himself down to a state of spiritual mental exhaustion. If Jesus is our example, well, here's what he does. With honesty, and it says he spoke gracious words. With honesty and with gracious words, he spoke the truth. He interpreted the scripture, he explained to them what it meant, and he left it to God's Holy Spirit to do the work. He passed through their midst, he went away. We all, we all know people that we wish were saved. Well, my advice to you is to pray for them and at any opportunity you get to speak the word of truth. But in the end, it's a work of God himself. Preaching the gospel is bringing life to some and it's bringing death to others. As the Apostle Paul said, who is sufficient for these things? Well, in a way, we're not sufficient. Jesus himself is sufficient. But always remember, remember my friends, we are given the gift of God's Holy Spirit to enable us to serve God. We're not sufficient, but God within us is sufficient. So speak the truth, use gracious words, interpret the scriptures correctly. When you do that, you can sleep at night knowing you've done what it is that God commanded you to do. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, 
It is my hope and prayer that I indeed have interpreted the scriptures correctly and spoken the truth. Lord, I pray that the work of your word will be evident in our lives and in the lives of people around us. May we be given opportunities to share your word and may we be given the courage to take every opportunity. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.